money is everywhere and we seemingly can't live without it. However, while everybody seems to use money, many of us never stop and think about what money exactly is. We take money for granted. Today, we will take a close look at our beloved euros, dollars and liras. What gives these sheets of paper or digit on a bank their value? Has money always functioned the same? In this episode, we'll discuss the power of credit. Welcome to Money Talks. As with nearly everything history related, the creation of money knows more than one Genesis story. But regardless of what story we choose to believe, we have to start in a situation with no money. When there's no money, barter, the trade of products against one another, is the only option. Unfortunately, however, barter brings with it some problems. Not only do both trading partners need to want each other's products, but there's also the problem of perishable goods. Imagine this hypothetical situation. You are a hunter-gatherer in prehistoric Europe. You caught four fishes and collected two baskets of berries. You can't eat all the berries nor all the fish, so you decide to trade some with a fellow tribesman. The tribesman offers fresh moose meat in return for a basket of berries and a fish. However, you just traded three fish for a piece of moose meat yesterday, which means you'll have no use for an extra piece of it. You also can't postpone the trade of these goods. After all, both the berries, the fish and the moose meat will rot if they aren't consumed within a couple of days. In situations like these, money would be an optimal solution. One can use money as a medium of exchange to facilitate this trade. Besides that, money could store the value of the goods that would otherwise have perished and therefore lost their value. The tribesman could have paid you money for the fish and the basket of berries. You could have then taken that money to spend it when you were in need of fresh meat a few days later. Now here's where it gets tricky. Some scholars believe that in order to mitigate the problems that arise from barter, a form of money was created that holds some sort of similar intrinsic value, such as golden coins or gemstones. This theory is called the commodity theory and it assumes the value of the money to exist intrinsically. More on that later. Today, however, we will focus on a different theory, the credit theory. Credit theory attributes the value of money not to the metal in the coin, but to credit and debt, to the claim on something or someone else. By selling your fish and berries to the fellow tribesmen for money, you essentially trade your goods for his tokens of debt. You can, at a later time, extinguish his debt by giving him back his tokens in return for some freshly hunted moose meat. What these tokens are made of doesn't matter, as long as everyone accepts them as payment. Credit and its study have always been connected with money. Throughout history, people have tried to understand money. More specifically, they have tried to find its essence, the thing that defines it. Why have people been willing to accept trading things that have some use, like food or services, for a coin and a note that is useless without the promise that you will be able to exchange it in the future for something you want? When answering this, people have come up with different explanations. In this context, there are two dominant theories. The first theory states that money is a measurement of debts. 
When you sell something, you do not get an intermediate good. You get an object, money, that represents an existing debt. This way, money is just a measurement of the debt you owe or own. This makes sense because when you hold a 5 euro bill, you don't keep it for the value of the cotton it is made with. You keep it to exchange it for something equivalent to that face value. The same happens with the money you spend with your debit card, or when you check your bank app to see if you can really afford that ice latte. Those numbers you see on the screen represent only the debt that the bank has with you, according to their internal accounts. This means that also your virtual money is just a representation of credit commitment between the bank and you. So I'm sorry to disappoint you, but your bank doesn't have a room with your name written on the door that is full of notes and gold. As a matter of fact, banks keep very little of those. However, some people have argued that the base of money is not credit, but rather the commodity itself. That is, the value of money doesn't come from the promise of payment, but from the material it is made with. When people started trading in small communities, they often encountered the problem of the double coincidence of needs. If you were a baker and you wanted to buy some flour from the farmer, you needed the farmer to be interested in buying your bread. This was not always the case. To solve this problem, people started using intermediate commodities for trading. This way, the baker could pay some coins to the farmer, and the farmer could use those coins to buy something that he actually wanted, like a sickle from the blacksmith. They chose to use precious metals because their characteristics made them very saleable and they started becoming widespread around the communities. However, this theory has traditionally had less support, because it fails to acknowledge the power and importance that credit has in money, but also in society. Nowadays, we all have fridges, so the problem of perishable moose meat is less pronounced. However, our current monetary system is still based upon comparable mechanics. Even when you don't own a credit card, you are, in one way or another, still reaping the benefits of credit. An easy way to explain this is by taking the example of the opening of a business. Say, for example, you were to start up a restaurant located in the middle of Amsterdam. Most of us wouldn't be able to fund the initial investment, so you would take out a loan. In that case, the bank would deposit, let's say, 1 million euros in your bank account, which you would then use to pay for the building, the kitchen appliances, and the rest of the inventory. But where does this loan money come from? You were given 1 million euros, while the other clients of the bank also maintained their capital. It seems as if the bank just created money out of thin air. In reality, this money actually does come from the deposit from other clients. Banks believe that not all of their clients will simultaneously withdraw in cash all their deposits. In order to make profit of all this left-alone money, banks lend it to a client who needs it now and get it back in the future with interest. Credit therefore leads to an increase in spending, as instead of being unused, the money is invested, increasing income levels in the economy. This leads to a higher economic output and faster productivity growth. If the money obtained from the credit is invested in productive resources or projects, it contributes to growth. The power of credit lies not in today, but in tomorrow. It relies on the idea that the future is brighter than the present, 
and that economic agents trust each other and the money they use. While the abundance of credit has downsides, as we have seen in the financial crisis of 2008, it is also one of the most important pillars of our modern economy. Therefore we could say, we owe credit, just as credit owes us. Money Talks was produced by Alberto Paviasoto, Charlene Miquet, and Malik Sio. You can find us online at soundcloud.com slash moneytalks underscore yuva. Thank you for listening. <laughs>